Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a draft review conversation with Dan Pompey, longtime NFL scribe, very, very well respected by me. And also LaCharles Bentley, former NFL center, who is in New York this week to talk about changes, immense changes to the rules in the NFL that are taking the helmet out of the game. So I wanted to start by talking to you a little bit about what happened to me during the draft and where I was and what I saw and just talking about one team in particular, and that's the Cleveland Browns. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it has become pretty fashionable. The Browns are the butt of a lot of jokes. Uh, one in 31, the last two years in the last 53 games, last three and a half years, the Cleveland Browns are four and 49. Um, and I, I think it just has become fashionable, and I was in Cleveland for, for four days during the draft, to almost knee-jerk immediately be skeptical about anything that the Browns do. Um, and so I thought I would just explain a couple of things that I saw when I was in Cleveland and also say that there's absolutely no way you're going to make any judgment on anything that they did uh, for another two and a half to three years. Um, I always think that draft grades uh, very much... I know why draft grades are done in the internet world. It's clickbait. Oh, how did my team do? Let's click on it and see what the MMQB, what ESPN, what what Kuiper, what Benoit, what whoever, what they believe my team did. So I understand it, but I think it is worth the equivalent of the role of a toilet paper. Um, I just think it's silly stuff to do, but it's done, um, and that's just the way the internet world is. But I, I want to just talk for a minute about how the Cleveland Browns arrived at the decision to take Baker Mayfield number one, a decision that was largely panned um, in the draftnik world. Mike Mayock on NFL Network said that Baker Mayfield was the number four out of four top quarterbacks on his draft board. And I think a lot of people agree with Mayock. They were skeptical. A lot of people like Darnold better, uh, Sam Darnold of USC. A lot of people like Josh Arnold, uh, Allen of Wyoming better. And so I, I just want to explain a couple of things about how they arrived at this decision. So 
when John Dorsey got this job five months ago as the general manager of the Cleveland Browns, he pretty much knew that with the first pick in the draft or what was logically almost certainly going to be at the time the first pick in the draft, he was going to take a quarterback. There was no very little doubt about it from the start. The Cleveland Browns in the previous 19 drafts since they came back into the NFL in 1999, in the previous 19 drafts, had taken a quarterback in the top 20 one time. And that was in their first year of new existence um, when uh, they ended up taking Tim Couch, quarterback from Kentucky, number one overall in 1999. Since then, they had never taken a quarterback higher than 22 overall. So they were convinced they were going to take one. And one of the things that John Dorsey, the GM of the Browns, did early on is he hired Elliot Wolf. Uh, one of his uh, longtime uh, uh, peers in when he was with the Green Bay Packers, son of uh, Hall of Fame general manager Ron Wolf, and he also brought in uh, Scott McLuhan, the former general manager in Washington and San Francisco, who now runs an independent scouting service. And one of the things he said to him is he said, look, I want you guys to give me your scouting report on these top quarterbacks. So the five first-round prospect quarterbacks, he wanted their scouting reports on all of them. So Elliot Wolf had already done his in Green Bay. He got hired after the season by the Cleveland Browns. So he had already uh, done those scouting reports. Similarly, Scott McLuhan had already done his scouting reports and so, but he didn't want them to share the information with anybody. He didn't want them talking to anybody on the staff about him. And John Dorsey would also do his scouting report. And this is what I found the most interesting about this whole story. When John Dorsey collected the two scouting reports and then added his scouting report, he looked at the grades. John Dorsey uh, brought a grading system to Cleveland that he learned from Ron Wolf in Green Bay. The grades go from 1.0, which is poor, to 9.0, which is superstar. And so in this uh, draft parlance, uh, John Dorsey finished his scouting report on the quarterbacks, and he had Baker Mayfield rated the top-rated quarterback in this draft with an 8.5 grade. That is equivalent to a top-10 pick in any draft. He read Elliot Wolf's report after he finished his own report, and Elliot Wolf had given Baker Mayfield the highest grade of any quarterback in this draft. He gave Mayfield an 8.5. And then he got the scouting report from Scott McLuhan. Scott McLuhan uh, grades players with different nomenclature. So the lower the number in Scott McLuhan's grading system, it goes back to the old Blesto scouting service, but Scott McLuhan gave him a gave Baker Mayfield the highest grade uh, that he gave anybody in this draft, and he gave him a 1.1 on his scale, which was the best grade, and that equated to approximately an 8.5. So John Dorsey, when I was in Cleveland, he looked at me and he said, so here's the three scouting reports, and basically they're almost exactly the same grade. And he said, that's when I really started to feel good I felt great about my 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 report on him anyway. And when I was backed up by two guys who I respect so much, that really gave me a conviction. And Dorsey told me, when I got on the plane after the March 22 workout in Norman, Oklahoma, 
when we put uh, Baker Mayfield, we took him out to dinner the night before. We put him through a workout. He just said he didn't tell anybody. But he got on the plane that day, and he goes, that's my dude. That's our dude. We're going to take him. He didn't tell anybody, and he managed to keep the secret until Adam Schefter uh, started leaking it out. Uh, not that they definitely were going to take him, but started saying it was a possibility, and, and people around the league believed that that's who they were going to take the day before the draft uh, last Thursday. Um, in general, one other point about uh, about this draft and about particularly where we are right now sort of in the sport of football. I think this game, this draft taught us something about the game and where exactly the game is right now. And it taught us that teams are really going to stretch for quarterbacks. Look at the Baltimore Ravens. The Baltimore Ravens have Joe Flacco, who just four or five years ago won a Super Bowl. He's still young. But the Ravens are getting a little impatient. They haven't played well on offense. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it stands to reason when they are, sit, they are sitting there toward the end of the first round and here comes Lamar Jackson and he's dropped all the way to the bottom of the first round. It stands to reason that they are going to take a flyer and they are going to give Lamar Jackson every opportunity soon to win this starting job. I believe Flacco plays at the start of this year, but if he slumps, I think they're handing the keys um, to this new quarterback, Lamar Jackson. It's going to be a difficult transition, but I think Lamar Jackson is such a playmaker that when the Ravens go to him, there will be no turning back. I think that the other quarterbacks here, I think Sam Darnold is going to play at some point in 2018, but they won't rush him in. Um, and I think that Josh Allen is probably going to play the earliest of all of these quarterbacks because I think that the Buffalo Bills feel that he fits their offense, he fits their city, fits their climate, um, and I think he's going to end up beating out A.J. McCarron by the middle of October. I think that he plays the earliest of anybody um, in this draft. So we'll see. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Um, I think when there are a lot of quarterbacks in the first round, and there were the most quarterbacks in the first round since 1999, so in 19 years, there haven't been five first-round quarterbacks until this year. And so just gives everybody a little bit more to get excited about in this NFL season. And now my conversation with Dan Pompey. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Happy to be joined by Dan Pompey, veteran football writer uh, from Chicago, uh, works for both Bleacher Report and The Athletic. And also, uh, Dan uh, is the author of a book coming out in August called Fearless. It's the memoir of Doug Peterson. I'm very, very anxious to read that, having spent quite a bit of time with Doug Peterson in the playoffs uh, and, and around the Super Bowl this year. So really excited about that project. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Great. Um, so let's. I want to go over three things now, okay? I want to go over the first round of this draft. I want to go over the Bears, and I want to go over Doug Peterson. I think this is going to be really interesting chat. Um, let's, let's first talk about the Bears 
That's a team, obviously, you covered for a long time. You live there. You're very familiar with them. You've written extensively on them. There are many who are looking at this draft, Dan, and this offseason, saying that uh, the Bears may have improved their team more than any team in the league. I think it's very interesting that, um, in my opinion, Roquan Smith, a linebacker from Georgia, uh, you know, the best sideline to sideline player in this draft sort of fell into their lap at number eight when many people thought that he may go as early as five or six, particularly six to Indianapolis, and he's there for them. Add to that uh, what they've done this offseason on offense, uh, adding ta- veteran wide receivers, Allen Robinson, Taylor Gabriel, a veteran tight end, Trey Burton, and uh, I think it's a. Uh, I think it's been a very, very interesting, productive off season for the Bears. Um, but I, I sort of want to get your view on. Let's do this in a global way first. In your mind, what's the best thing the Bears did this off season? Well, certainly they hope the best thing they did was hire Matt Nagy as their as their new head coach because they feel like he can bring out the best in Mitch Trubisky. And I think a lot of what their offseason was about, Peter, was trying to make Trubisky all he can be by surrounding him with the right parts. And the first part is, is Matt Nagy and his offense. And uh, they, they believe that that can really help Trubisky. Uh, the two of them, Nagy and Trubisky, had clicked in the pre-draft process uh, back when Nagy was the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, and Nagy had a great affinity for Trubisky. Obviously, they did not have a chance to draft him in Kansas City because the Bears got him with the second overall pick of the draft. Uh, so one of the reasons the Bears uh, were drawn to him, Ryan Pace and George McCaskey, is because he really thought Trubisky could be special and he would wanted to, to work with him very badly. And then you look at some of the pieces they they put around him, as as you mentioned. uh, They went out and they got receivers and uh, tight end uh, who they feel can not only fit Nagy's offense, but also highlight what Trubisky can do best. And, uh, you know, even in the draft, in the second round of the draft, they they took two players uh, who should help. And, And James Daniels, a center at Iowa, who they are going to move to guard. And Anthony Miller, wide receiver. Oh, so that's that's interesting. I thought they might be moving Cody White here to guard from center. Yeah, that that was my initial assumption too. But the plan going in right now is for James Daniels to play left guard, replace Josh Sitton, who was cut uh, earlier in the off season, and keep White hair at center. And I, I believe the thinking there is, you know, White hair and Trubisky have. Uh, some chemistry and some experience working together. And, and you know, it took a, a little while for that to happen, uh, both because Trubisky was not accustomed to playing under center and also because uh, Whitehair was moved around last season between guard and, and center. So um, I think they want to keep that going. Uh, the good news is they feel like both players have positional versatility. And if they get to a point where they believe uh, one is better than the other, uh, at center or guard, they they can flip them. What's your sense right now about uh, about this almost complete offensive uh, uh, change over the course of this off season? 
uh, with the exception, you know, of Jordan Howard in the backfield. This is really going to be a new offense for the Chicago Bears. And it was very much necessary. You know, they, they their offense last year and the year before was really challenged on so many levels. Uh, so I, I think it's it's a welcome change. Uh, you know, I think some of the things that Matt Nagy promises to do uh, are, are going to be, you know, they're going to bring the Bears into the, the new century of offense, really. And uh, it's going to be uh, something that, that Trubisky has had experience with back in his college days. And really, you know, you look at all these kids coming out of college now and, and the kinds of offenses that they are used to. And uh, I think it makes sense to have pro teams incorporate a lot of elements uh, that, that they are using in college. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Uh, obviously, the success of the Philadelphia Eagles winning the Super Bowl with a lot of the RPO concepts, I think, is going to spread throughout the league. And I think you're going to see it in Chicago as well. And, and it, you know, it trickles down to every area of the offense, how you run the ball, how you block, the types of blockers you use, the types of running backs you look for, everything. One of the things that I, I would expect Matt Nagy to do uh, to a greater extent than the coaching staff did last year was incorporate Tariq Cohen very much in the offense and try to get him the ball. What an exciting player ways, he creative is. Creative ways. Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's something else. He I sprawls. Mean, the, he sprawls 2.0. Yeah, he really is. And, uh, he can do a lot of different things, and you, you just have to figure out the best way to use him. I thought the Bears were onto something early last year, and then they kind of hit a roadblock with him. Obviously, you know, if you're a defensive coordinator, you're going to look at a, a kid like that, and you're going to come up with different ways to take him out of the game. And, you know, there are ways to do that, but you have to kind of uh, keep moving in a different spot of the chessboard with him and trying to uh, come up with a different way to get him the football and get him in space and make sure that he can make a big play. You know, what's really interesting is that Matt Nagy basically last year, I think, did a, a terrific job incorporating uh, really Tyreek Hill and Kareem Hunt in Kansas City in doing a lot of different things. In training camp last year, I saw Tyreek Hill twice in the span of about seven or eight minutes uh, in a in eleven on eleven. I saw him bisect the safeties and just very very easily, uh, you know, score two very deep touchdowns. And so I was convinced going into this season, Tyreek Hill was going to be an absolute phenom, and he was very good. But what surprised me is how Matt Nagy used uh, uh, Kareem Hunt from the very start of the season. And I don't know if you remember this, Dan, but he scored on a wheel route out of the backfield that turned from a wheel route to sort of a deep post that he beat a Patriots linebacker on, and I'm guessing it was about a 75-yard touchdown. And I said to myself, who takes a running back in his first game in the NFL and sends him out like he's Bob Hayes? And and I just I, I think that what Bears fans should get used to is sort of the imagination of Matt Nagy and using people maybe like they haven't been used before. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, the Kareem Hunt thing was a shock to the NFL. I mean, he wasn't even a high draft pick. 
And uh, I think through the first three weeks of the season last year, uh, he had he had more yards from scrimmage than anyone since Billy Sims. Uh, so a lot of people thought when Nagy came here that maybe Jordan Howard wasn't his type of back. Uh, Howard is is more of an old school back between the tackles, uh, plow horse, uh, not the the greatest in the passing game. Uh, but so far, Nagy has completely embraced him and said that this is my kind of guy and we could do great things with him. And obviously, you know, that's uh, the sign of, of a good head coach, someone who could take a player with talent and make it work with him, even though he's not the same type of player maybe that he worked with in the past or he believes that, uh, you know, was is the ideal prototype for his offense. Uh, speaking with Dan Pompey, uh, the fine NFL writer for Bleacher Report, The Athletic, has a new book coming out in August called Fearless, Memoir of Doug Peterson. And I have to say this, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but I never thought I would say, and now a book, The Memoir of Doug Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> After his second year in the NFL, but uh, anyway, uh, we'll, I know. we'll 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 get to that. Um, Dan, one other thing about the Bears. So, I don't want to be too, uh, you know, I I I I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. But when I saw Chicago pick Roquan Smith, I can't help myself. He's not the size of Butkus. He's not the imposing figure, the physical figure that Erlocker is. But I have to tell you, I immediately thought of the modern version of a monster of the midway. In this way, when I say modern version, I mean it is as important to be fast as it is to be furious. And so give me your view on, on Roquan Smith the Bears, the history, and whether you think he fits right now in what they're going to do in Vic Fangio's defensive scheme. Peter, I thought he was a perfect pick for the Bears on a number of levels. Uh, as you say, he is a modern inside linebacker, and I think he's he's a great fit for Vic Fangio and what he likes to do. And if the Bears ever want to go to a different type of defense, he's the type of player who would be a great fit in that, too, because he can do just about anything. Um, he, he might be a guy who is not the ideal size. It's actually, you know, uh, the Bears have had four middle linebackers go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, or one of them's on, its, on his way, actually, Brian Urlacher. Uh, but I went back and looked, and, and the, the only one who – who Roquan Smith is bigger than is Mike Singletary, uh, which which is interesting because the others obviously all played in eras where the rest of the players were smaller. Uh, but he's the fastest. You know, he runs a four five one forty. Burlacker wasn't much slower than that, uh, and obviously he was a lot bigger. But you know, it, it's uh, it's not about the size. You know, uh, as as Mike Singletary told me, it's all about the heart. Always has been. Always will be. And uh, this is a guy who just make, makes plays. He's a leader. He's an alpha. And, you know, the Bears have not had that on defense in a while. Maybe, and, uh, since, maybe guy, since either Urlach or Lance Briggs, right? Yeah, probably, probably. And, and this is a guy you, you could build around and you could, uh, you know, he, he should lead you 
in tackles for, you know, the next decade or whatever. And he should be a guy, uh, like I said, who, who all the other players look to and he raises the boats and he does everything the right way. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, you, you need guys like that. They need, what they need more than anything based on who they were last year is guys to make plays, you know, guys to change the game in the fourth quarter uh, when things are tied up and the clock is ticking down and, uh, you know, the other team is driving. Uh, they just haven't had enough of those types of players, and I think they they certainly hope that Roquan Smith can be the type of guy who can be a, a, a game changer. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing that they didn't do in the draft that they probably needed to do more than anything was get someone who could get after the quarterback right. because uh, the, the only – guy they have who has really demonstrated that ability uh, on a high level with any consistency is Leonard Floyd, and he's had a hard time staying on the field. So um, that's an area that surprised me a little bit that they didn't uh, improve much in the draft. Now, they did they did uh, draft a, a pass rusher on the second day, but in terms of uh, getting someone who is a premium guy you could expect to help you this year, that's something they did not do. Uh, talking to Dan Pompey. Dan, let's move over to the first round of the draft um, and and give me a little bit of your impression. I'm going to scatter shoot. Let's go through a little bit of a lightning round about the draft. Tell me uh, what you thought of what Cleveland did. Baker Mayfield won, Denzel Ward four. You know, I, I had no problem with it. I know some people thought that uh, it was a little bit crazy that they didn't take either Darnold number one or Bradley Chubb at number four. Uh, but, you know, Dorsey said that he thought that they had Chubb and uh, Ward rated equally. And if they did, uh, why don't you take the player who you really needed? And that's what they did. Uh, Mayfield is going to be interesting, though. I mean, all these quarterbacks, that's the thing that I think people forget a little bit, is that this really was not considered to be a great group of quarterbacks. And if you were really honest about it, you probably would have had several players uh, on your board ahead of the quarterbacks, including Dan Sports. Yeah, what they what this was, I think, Dan, this was a draft with five B-plus quarterbacks. You know, this is a draft yeah, that's where, a ev- way to look at it. where every quarterback is flawed. And you know what? Any one of these guys could turn out to be a Pro Bowl player, in my opinion. Like, quite literally, any one of them. I just have no idea which one it'll be. It's like what Sean Payton said to me a couple of weeks ago that, uh, in his opinion, uh, probably only one of the five is going to end up being uh, a really good player, in his opinion, uh, that would be Sam Darnold. But in other people's opinions, uh, it's going to be Mayfield. The Patriots ended up loving Mayfield. Mary Kay Cabot in Cleveland said that six teams she spoke to had him number one on their board. Uh, Elliot Wolf, who I interviewed for a story this week, the assistant GM, basically said to me, uh, I'm not going to change my grade uh, where uh, where I have one guy way ahead of everybody else uh, just because he's two inches shorter than everybody else. So... I think that is going to be the big thing about Mayfield is being six foot and five eighths inches tall going to affect him. It certainly didn't affect him at Oklahoma. Right. You know, everyone wants to compare him to Drew Brees or Russell Wilson in that regard, but um, those are really special players 
who have an exceptional feel for how to deal with their lack of height. But I think more and more, Peter, I'm sure you'll agree with this, uh, the height at the quarterback position probably is, is not as important as it used to be because you've got all these moving pockets now and things being happening outside of uh, the tackle box. So, uh, you know, as long as you've got an offensive coordinator who understands that, uh, you know, th- this kid clearly has a feel for what to do uh, in an improv improvising situation and uh, he's been very good at it in college so um, you know I think that part of it might be a little overstated Um, but you know to get back to the the big picture with the quarterbacks I'm with you any of them could be a pro bowler but I would also say this I think any of them could be a bust too no question I I think it it's it's a high stakes game with the quarterbacks and if you're in need of one and you've got one of those high take one and you have to identify which one that you like the best that's available when you're picking. And that's what they did with Mayfield. And, and, uh, uh, you know, there, there was, I think, uh, if you, you've talked to enough people as, and I know you did, uh, you would find, uh, different opinions on who the best one was. Uh, Not everyone thought it was Mayfield. Not everyone thought it was Donald. Some people thought it was Josh Allen. Uh, so I I even talked to people who said that, you know, the best pure passer was, Josh Rosen. So uh, a lot of different opinions there, which goes to show you that, you know, there, there really wasn't one guy who stood out above the crowd. Did the Giants do the right thing taking Saquon Barkley, the running back from Penn State, number two? I think they did. You know, if they weren't in love with one of the quarterbacks who was left, uh, you know, if they really thought that Darnold could be a guy who could lead them for, for 10 years, then, you know, I would say, well, yeah, you should have gotten Darnold. But um, I think it's pretty clear that, that they did not feel that way, and they felt like Barkley could be a guy who really uh, could help them in a lot of ways. And, you know, the Giants added a lot of talent in the draft. I mean, you look at what they did, I, I thought, yeah, outstanding. And, and really, uh, Barkley is a guy who's going to help them, is going to help them now. And I know there are a lot of teams on their schedule that are saying, oh, no, look who the Giants got. They got they got Barkley. They got Evan Ingram, who's probably the best young tight end. He and Hunter Henry, I would guess, are the best two young tight ends in football. And and then, you know, you got Odell uh, and, and you got Sterling Shepard. They're, they're going to be – look, I think that – I mean, since the Super Bowl, when Eli beat the Patriots in two, February 2012 – uh, among all the quarterbacks who've been in the league since then, he's the lowest-rated player. And so people would say, oh, my God, get rid of him, go draft his successor. And maybe they should have, and they certainly will regret it if Darnold is really good. But on the other hand, you know, imagine if you pick up uh, a guard like Will Hernandez with the second pick of the second round. Who One of the best quotes from the draft, Dan, I remember watching watching the draft, and here comes Mike Mayock when they pick Will Hernandez, and Mike Mayock says, you know, here's the thing about this guy. He just doesn't like people. <laughs> <laughs> and I just was laughing my rear end off listening to this. But, but it, you know, so... Was that a compliment? Or, I, think or, it, or a... I think it was a compliment. I think he, he, he basically meant, Will Hernandez is your basic hitman, you know? And uh, <laughs> so, but, but anyway, I think their biggest, you know, now that they've added Hernandez and Nate Solder's going to be their left tackle, in my opinion, their biggest issue is right tackle. 
And, you know, I, I just don't think Eric Flowers is going to be on their team this year. I don't know what's going to happen, but he's not anybody who was well-liked on the team anyway. Um, so I, I, I think he's going to be gone. But anyway, let's move to the Jets at three. And um, I think we'll probably never know this, but I'll always think that there is a, there is a sector of that building that really wanted Baker Mayfield and a sector of that building that really wanted Sam Darnold. In my opinion, whichever quarterback went there, you're very fortunate because of two human beings, Jeremy Bates and Josh McCown. I think Jeremy Bates is an underrated offensive mind in the NFL right now. And in my 35 years covering the NFL, I have never seen, never, uh, a, a quarterback, an incumbent quarterback, who helps people take his job the way Josh McCown does. So j- just give me your view on, on Darnold to the Jets. You know, I, I think it was the right pick for them, uh, given that, especially given that Mayfield was off the board, if they, if they did in fact want Mayfield more. Um, but I think, uh, you know, he, he's in a very good situation, as you said, with, with Josh McCown there. Uh, it's, they've got a lot of, of uh, people in that room now, a lot of people with talent, with Teddy Bridgewater there as well. We don't know what's going to happen beyond the three of them, but uh, that, that's, that's a, a stacked depth chart right there. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they get Donald on the field and how that whole thing plays out. Um, you know, I think they really could use uh, a little more help around him to develop him. We talked a little earlier about how the Bears have surrounded Trubisky with some good guys. Now, if you're going to play a rookie quarterback, you want to give him every opportunity. And, uh, you know, they they could use a little more, I think, at the wide receiver position and uh, some of the skill position uh, uh, positions on offense so that the kid has a chance. Uh, two more about this about this draft. Dan, I'm curious. Were you surprised at number six, Chris Ballard, with so many defensive holes? I thought that was, if they were going to stay, I thought they'd take Roquan Smith. But give me your view on, uh, on the Indianapolis Colts taking Quentin Nelson at number six. Yeah, I thought they would take Roquan Smith, too, just because of the defensive needs. Or I thought they would move down. You know, there was a lot of talk about that. Uh, but you know, in, in hindsight, I think Nelson does make sense. I I always hesitate with a guard that high, just because guards aren't usually the types of players who you build around, who decide games. Uh, but this guy is so special, and uh, when you look at at the Colts and and uh, where they're at and the situation with Andrew Luck and his health, um, I guess you understand why. They want to really uh, reinforce that offensive line. And I know uh, Chris met with some of the Indianapolis reporters, uh, brought him up to his office and had a, a nice session, talked about all the players in the draft, and I think they watched some tape. And uh, he, his, his enthusiasm for Nelson is just off the charts. So, you know, when you're really on board w- with a player like that, and if it's organization-wide, everyone feels that same way, there's no decision. That's the guy for you. And I think uh, uh, they thought was going to be a great player. So it's hard to argue against Quentin Nelson. 
Uh, Dan Pompey, the fine NFL writer. We're going to finish up and ask him a couple of things about his book coming out. Dan, um, tell me, how did you get connected with Doug Peterson, and why are you writing Doug Peterson's memoir after his second year in the NFL? Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, Doug, uh, Doug thought that this was the good opportunity, the good time to write a book. And um, his agent hooked us up and thought that we'd be a good match to write the book. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, how could he write a memoir after only two years? But really, this is a guy who's been in the NFL a long time, and he's got a lot of really good stories, and he's got a lot of really interesting philosophies that were built up over time. You know, he was a quarterback in the NFL, as you know, for the better part of 14 seasons. And uh, just a lot of really interesting war stories. Uh, this is a guy who played under Don Shula and Mike Holmgren. He played with Dan Marino and Brett Favre. And uh, obviously a lot of experience uh, in different cities. You know, played in Cleveland, was in Carolina for a while. Uh, didn't end up actually on their team with the Panthers, but was taken by them in the expansion draft. Uh, Philadelphia played in Philadelphia when Donovan McNabb was a rookie. Uh, so, you know, he's really got quite an interesting breadth of experience and he sees the game in a way that a lot of other people don't, which is why I think the Eagles were able to do what they did last season. Um, he's not afraid to take risks. He's not afraid to think outside the box. Uh, he's got a great way, I think, of dealing with many people. Uh, and, uh, you know, he doesn't take himself too seriously. <laughs> I think right. he's got a great humility about him. So uh, he's unlike really any other football coach I've ever known. And uh, I think he's going to be a guy that uh, has a great influence on the NFL for a lot of years. What I thought was amazing, and NFL Films captured it perfectly, this is, I mean, obviously I wrote about this. I wrote 2,200 words at 3 o'clock in the morning in the press box in Minneapolis mostly um, about the, the incredible call he made at the end of the first half in the Super Bowl. We didn't find out how truly kind of, I don't want to even say happenstance, but how, how almost flippant it was that on fourth and one, uh, fourth and goal at the one in the at the end of the first half in the Super Bowl, at an automatic three points, and he had a guy who had never uh, thrown a pass uh, in his four years in the NFL. Trey Burton, he had throwing a pass to a guy who had never caught a pass or never been thrown a pass in his NFL career, and that's Nick Foles. And Nick Foles comes to the sideline, and they're trying to decide what play. And he said to Peterson, Philly, Philly? And there was this pause, and he goes, I think he said, yeah, why not? And so he called it, and that was the Philly special play. And what was so interesting, I thought about it, is that he didn't take it like it was the seventh game of the World Series. He didn't take it like, oh, man, you better be right. You better. He just made the call. If it works, great. If not, he's willing to take the slings and arrows. If that was incomplete and the Eagles had lost that game, that he would have gone down almost. It lost the game narrowly. He would have gone down almost like Daryl Bevel, you know, in not handing the ball to Marshall, uh, to uh, uh, Marshawn Lynch 
at the at the goal line three years earlier. Uh, right or wrong, whatever, Daryl Bevel is going to be haunted by that call probably for the rest of his football career. But I think I, I really like your title, Fearless, because that is what he really reminds me of. And and also, don't take yourself too seriously, you know, which which I think yeah. is, is exactly the way he acts. And, you know, some interesting things about that whole play, too, which I know you wrote about extensively, uh, but it actually was put in the week before uh, to to uh, go against the Vikings, and they thought right. they were going to use it that week, and uh, didn't de- did not end up coming up in the game. So they carried it over, uh, but didn't want to practice it uh, in in, uh, in at in Minneapolis because they were a little bit paranoid about you know how everything's crazy during Super Bowl week. So they never even practiced it in Minneapolis the whole week. And uh, they ended up calling it. Now, if you talk to Doug, though, he will tell you that, you know, while everyone talks about that play and probably will forevermore, he thought the, the gutsier call was the fourth down call. Fourth yep. and one uh, on their own 45 in the fourth quarter, about six minutes left. Uh, you know, l- let's go for it. Uh, if, if uh, you know, the game was truly on the line at that point, because if they had given the ball back to the Patriots at that point, I think they would have been about 45 yards away and uh, it would have been probably a completely different game. But, you know, the other thing, he shows great confidence and trust in his players. And uh, I think that's part of their whole secret. You know, these players felt empowered. One of his themes for the season was, ownership and he wanted his players to feel uh, like they were in charge of things and he trusted them and you know he gave them uh, the ability to have input into the game plans he did things that they wanted to do even even play calls at times you know he would take their input and listen to what they thought was important and uh, I think a lot of that ended up manifesting itself in a lot of executed plays that that went in in the Eagles' favor. Dan Pompey, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Good luck with your book, and thank you for sharing your knowledge with uh, with the commuters on their way to downtown Chicago, all of whom are listening to this podcast this morning. It's Wednesday. <laughs> it's going to be Wednesday morning, and I'm going to tweet this out. And everybody's going to be listening to Dan Pompey. So I really, really appreciate you taking all the time. All right. My pleasure always, Peter. This is the MMQB Podcast. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. I'm ready to go. 
Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. <laughs> oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. And now my conversation with former NFL center LaCharles Bentley. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Happy to be joined by LaCharles Bentley, six-year NFL center. And the reason why we're having uh, LaCharles on the show today is that uh, I, I find it interesting that the NFL, right after the draft, is basically telling its coaches, players, executives, hey, let's get ready for this new rule. And a bunch of people, owners, coaches, players, were brought to New York this week uh, to talk about this new rule, which essentially says that um, uh, players will no longer be able to lower their head and hit other players with their helmet, even if it's accidental. Um, So they're really, the NFL is trying its best to take the helmet out of the game. And Charles, my understanding is that Several of the coaches there today, Matt Patricia was there, Anthony Lynn of the Chargers, um, uh, Mike Tomlin of the Steelers, Dan Quinn of the Falcons, Todd Bowles, um, Mike Vrabel, and several of the coaches talked in an impassioned way about how difficult this is going going to be to coach and to police. I just want to ask you overall, is this a rule the NFL is going to be able to enforce? I believe there will be. I think it's going to start with the coaching aspect of it and uh, changing the culture and the mindset of how we go about developing our athletes. And as many of the coaches here, as you just outlined, they're so passionate about the game of football. And no one wants to see the game of football harmed in any uh, way, shape, or form. And I think today is a true first step in making sure that the game of tomorrow is going to be a lot different than what we see today. And how do you think that manifests itself? How will this game look different on the field in 2018 and beyond? Well, I think it first of all is going to be safer. Uh, and I think that's important not just for the players of today, but it's important for the players of tomorrow. Uh, how we go about teaching the athletes, uh, the word usage that we're utilizing, the equipment that we're utilizing, all that's going to play a significant role in what we see in tomorrow's game and obviously in today's game uh, as well. And it seems as if everyone here is committed, truly committed uh, to playing their roles. And that's from the NFL side, from the coaching side, from the ownership side, uh, from the fishing side as well. Everyone was so committed to coming up with different resolutions uh, to solve the issues that we're seeing in today's, uh, today's game. When, when you are asked about this rule, part of this, LaCharles, seems to me to be almost unrealistic to be able to police it. For years, we have seen in the running game, particularly, uh, defensive players hit the running back helmet to helmet. We've seen the the running back lowering his helmet uh, and and kind of maybe not using it as a battering ram, but using his helmet to try to get another yard or two. How different will the running game look without those elements? 
that was noted, especially by Coach Bowles. He was very adamant about the fact that this can't turn into just a defensive issue. We don't want to look at this issue in a vacuum. So, as you just outlined, the running backs, they are going to have some onus in this situation as well. And that's going to be changed. That's going to evolve. And uh, how that's ultimately going to look, we don't know for sure yet. But we do know that this isn't going to be looked at solely as a defensive problem. It will be an issue when the running backs are lowering their heads. And not just the running backs, but also on the offensive line and defensive line uh, side as well. This is impacting the entire game and every single uh, aspect. I think for so long, we've only looked at this issue as a defensive problem. Well, that's just one element of it. But as you really pull back the layers of the onion, you begin to see that this is just a football issue, a football issue in terms of every single layer of this game is affected. And so now, looking at it through these different set of lenses, we're now being able to, you know, I guess you could say outline uh, areas of how we can go about improving it from the offensive side and the defensive side. And I think that the biggest <laughs> the biggest concern that I had coming into this thing was how was it going to look for offensive linemen? You know, the, we're, you're, you're in a position where uh, head-to-head contact is it's inevitable. And I think that the biggest thing that I walk away from today feeling comfortable about is the fact that we all understand that. No one is trying to completely take the head out of the game because that's almost impossible to do. But there are ways that we can go about developing our athletes that will minimize it. Now, with that said, I do feel that it's a bit unfair uh, for the game. It's unfair for the National Football League. It's unfair for ownership. It's unfair for coaches uh, in the NFL to have to fall on the sword, so to speak, in terms of the full responsibility of trying to change this aspect of the game. Because many of these players, these issues that we're seeing, they don't start in the NFL. It starts at the pop water level, and it matriculates its way up through a junior high school, high school, then on into college, and then, you know what, on into the NFL. And coaches at this level, yeah, they don't have a lot of time, and in fact, most careers aren't long enough uh, to really address these issues. So looking at this thing at, at a very global perspective is another one of the elements that you feel really good about, especially being a father with five sons. Uh, you want them to have a safer game for tomorrow, but they're looking at this thing globally, understanding that it's not just going to be about what we do this year to fix these issues. It's what we're doing at the grassroots level on upwards to solve these problems. So is it, Charles, is it realistic to, uh, other than in in very accidental ways, is it realistic, do you think, to, to take the helmet out of the game the way the NFL is trying to do? I think it is in the way that they're trying to do it. Because as I said, we all understand that there there's going to be some elements of head-to-head contact. But what you can do, you can focus on teaching the game better. You can only control what you can control. And I think every coach uh, would attest to that. And I think the NFL is, is taking that same path of controlling what you can control. If we can minimize it and reduce these issues that we're dealing with, that's a win. Are we going to completely have these issues go away? No. Players are still going to tear ACLs. They're still going to break limbs. They're still going to have concussions. That's something that you inevitably sign up for as a player. But at the extent of what we're seeing these issues, that's where we have to begin to look at the uh, the coaching and developmental aspect and seeing how we can really solve the root of these issues. 
In the running game, I would ask you this question. I think we've all seen over the years, especially with the, quote, blocking back, you know, the fullback, and, and, that, and that has been diminished, obviously, over the last couple decades in the NFL, the importance of that. But a lot of teams still have it. James Devlin of the Patriots is sort of your classic fullback. And, and I wonder, are those guys going to have to change in almost a revolutionary way? I think that's already taken place uh, to an extent, you know, with the the fact that we don't see many of those type of players uh, anymore. I, I do believe that the, 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 the most substantial impact is going to be what's happening between the offensive and defensive line. That head-to-head contact aspect is something that we really haven't touched on uh, in that area of the game, and that's something today was a very big topic. Uh, even the idea of where defenders are bull rushing from, how defenders are bull rushing, how offensive line athletes are taking on bull rushes. Uh, what does it look like on the goal line? What does it look like uh, in short yardage situations? So all of those type of elements are, are the issues that we're all trying to work our ways through to solve the problems. Now, once again, are you ever going to completely get away from the, the inevitable head-to-head contact? No, you're never going to get away from it. But I think we all recognize that we can do a better job of minimizing the exposure. Did the head coaches seem skeptical today during your session, LaCharles? Not one bit. Everyone seemed very much on board. I think the only skepticism comes into uh, the fact that they understand that their hands are a bit tied in terms of the timing. And in turn, what I mean by timing is the amount of time that they do have uh, because they understand that the product that they're receiving from the collegiate level isn't the product that we're trying to get the game to evolve to. So it really puts them in a tougher spot because because you're trying to unlearn or get players to unlearn such bad habits they've ingrained over years of playing football. So if you say you're going to have a linebacker for three years of his career, it may take you four years or five years to fully get these issues that we're dealing with out of that particular player. That's not enough time uh, for anyone. That's not fair for some of these coaches they have to deal with. So that's why I get back to the point of looking at this issue on a more global level. What can we do at the Pop Warner level? What can we do at the high school and collegiate level to start solving some of these issues and addressing them so when the product or the player gets to this level, now we have something a little bit cleaner to work with. Uh, I think we all understand and everyone in the room understood that this issue isn't solved tomorrow. It's, it's a long play and it's a long ball and I think that everyone's willing to play that game. Finishing up with Charles Bentley. Um, Charles, I, I, when I think of this topic, you inevitably get to the topic of this rule, in my opinion, speaks to the mom in Dubuque, Iowa, who is trying to figure out whether to let her son play football um, or whether, you know, play anything above, let's say, flag football. And at the end of the day, you know, you know, this all of these rules that the NFL is is contemplating, you know, things like eliminating the kickoff, trying to cut down the number of concussions. Isn't it all about ensuring the long term future of football? Absolutely. 
the two most important elements that are going to determine the longevity of this game is going to be the blocking and the tackling and how it's done and how it's taught, how are the players are being developed. As I said previously, I'm a father of five boys, and I've been a bit skeptical about uh, the aspects of my sons playing football, but understanding and seeing where this game is evolving towards, how coaches, how the management aspect, how everyone is beginning to really take a different look and a different approach to how the game is being played, I feel better as a parent. Now, as a lover of football, uh, someone that were football, the game itself has given me everything that I have and has helped me become the person I am today, I feel damn good about where this game is going. Now, I understand that it's not going to be there tomorrow, but I do appreciate and respect the fact that there are steps being made. So that mom in uh, Dubuque, I believe you said it was, uh, I think she should feel good about the steps that are being made here uh, as well and what the product is going to be uh, this year and moving forward. Will you let your five sons play tackle football? As of right now, yeah, I feel good about it. I feel much better about it uh, than I have in the past. In fact, my oldest son, uh, he's playing uh, tackle football. He's a freshman in, in high school. And once again, I go back to that fact of I have been very skeptical about where the game was going and how players are being developed, especially at the lower levels. But understanding that these people now are beginning to understand that this is important. This isn't just talk. Uh, there has to be action put behind it. I feel very good about the prospects moving forward yes i bet you're concerned about his helmet i mean that's the one thing that if i were a parent i would want to know that my kid was not wearing a helmet that has been in the high school program for 18 years and and doesn't have the most modern technology i know this is an odd question but are you concerned about the helmet no, no i'm not as concerned about the helmet uh because being in the performance world, I understand that that's just a tool. That should be something that enhances the safety. That should not be relied or solely relied on uh, as how you create a safer environment. You know, I equate it to, to uh, driving a car. Great. You got a seatbelt on. Awesome. You, you, but you don't have a driver's license and no one taught you how to drive. It's the same thing in this instance. You can put a player in a better helmet or better shoulder pads, but if you aren't teaching them what they need to know, it doesn't matter. It's not going to really affect the, uh, the changes that we're really trying to uh, to have at this point in time. So, uh, with my son, going back to that, that, what you brought up with my boys, you know, it's great to have a good helmet, but I'm more concerned with how they're being taught, how they're being developed. If we're still instituting uh, the helmet as a teaching tool, then this is all for not. And the more we can get the helmet utilized as a teaching tool out of the game, now when you begin to put better quality uh, equipment into the game, it has a much more substantial effect. Well, Charles Bentley, hey, really appreciate you uh, educating our listeners and uh, explaining what's going on over at the NFL this week. As usual, I appreciate you. Thanks to my guests, Dan Pompey and Charles Bentley. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Chris Mortensen, Tom Brady, and Bruce Arians. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King 
on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and I'll see you next week.